Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. This is Gabriel Krauser and I'm joined by my co-host. How's it, Gabriel? Good, man. Um, so I think late. we're planning... Yeah, we're a little bit late. Uh, workers' Day, I suppose we were being uh, super-duper workers on Workers' Day. Uh, I was also dealing with crossing borders again and buying illicit cigarettes. Uh, which I really did not want to do. It's something that I've resisted doing for years and had like arguments about with people at bars who do it. I've often bummed their smokes, but uh, or shared <laughs> smokes with them. But uh, I've kind of, I've kind of always been a proud South African taxpayer. Little as I earn, I've kind of thought if some of my money is uh, getting to title deeds or or you know making whole. Uh, people who should be made whole, then that's good. And I have been driven into the black market by the continued ban. Indeed. Uh, so, but, uh, but I think, I think, sorry, Nick, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the highlight of my weekend was the fact that now that food services are once again open, um, I've been heroically and selflessly laying down my wallet to support local business <laughs> by buying lots and lots and lots of fast food uh as much as i'm able however to my great uh, horror uh my favorite of all of the great uh, food options that we have to be able to be delivered to us mcdonald's is not available uh near me uh, they've only opened like 20 of them in the whole country or something and uh, i'm not in range of any of them for delivery so uh, there's a mcdonald's shaped hole in my soul uh, which is proving very difficult to fill, even though I have lots of many, much higher quality options around me. So this has led to a, the, the lockdown has led to a bizarre circumstance where I can get fancy Asian fusion food, uh, but not McDonald's, which is very twisted as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm worried about that. I We are in a farm in the middle of nowhere and we've been planning a drive. So I totally feel you about uh, being out of range of delivery. We on a farm in the middle of nowhere are out of the range for all delivery, but we've been planning for uh, a, a few days now to make a 45 minute trip to the nearest big town and then order a and just park outside some house and then order a delivery to there um, from Steers because I really love Steers and I miss Steers. And I think that's the only way that I'm going to get food. I actually saw a fantastic uh, video um, that uh, an essential worker sent me, uh, which was this really, really long line of Uber driver delivery guys in the Rosebank McDonald's drive-thru. Um, so they, yeah. they the, the Uber drivers get there and, and uh, the nation is ordering McDonald's as far as I can tell from that video. Well, it's a sign of happiness. And I think that uh, would segue nicely into the first topic that I want to talk about. Um, but I just want to give listeners a sense of how many things we want to try and cover so that we can try and hold ourselves to getting to all of them. So one is the Great Awakening. One is socialism and corruption, the connection between the two in this time when we've got massive uh, uh, swelling of state responsibilities in South Africa and around the world. Another one is uh, how that then relates to food in particular and uh, tobacco. Then we've got a story coming out of America, uh, the biggest supply chain, uh, FUPA, uh, from the biggest uh uh, subcontracted uh, efforts to get masks to the Veteran Association uh, hospital care workers. Uh, 
Then we're going to talk about uh, the, the, the worst fallacy, I think, looking at the South African COVID numbers, uh, which I've been working on and writing about. And, uh, and then we'll get to a little bit of an international thing about some states that have stayed open, states that want to open up. And then I think we'll finish up with a debate that is very uh, deep um, and, and urgent in South Africa to have in a clear and robust way about how we should think about schools in the lockdown. But so let's start off with a, with with this sense of you know the, the 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 nation finally getting to eat the McDonald's that it loves again, and more broadly the Great Awakening. Uh, so the, the 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 Great Awakening is the title of a book by Oliver Sacks, who passed away a couple of years ago, but was uh, probably the most successful uh, psy. Psychiatrist was he psychiatrist or psychologist? I can't remember now. But he he sort of he had a definitely had a PhD. He, he was a very serious student of the mind, and he also wrote very popularly accessible books. Uh, one was famously called "The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat." Uh, he 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 did a really good job of kind of finding very interesting ways that people uh, would be abnormal uh, in their brain function, and often they would find beautiful ways to live life, to, to find meaning in their lives, and sometimes not, but there's always something interesting uh, that you could find about what that also says about the nature of life itself and about and about how the rest of us get along with it. But his first his first great success and 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 really the his in his initiation into the profession after he'd completed his studies uh, was to go to a village, I think it was in the south of France, where you had catatonic people. Uh, with a very heavy uh, kind of psych, uh, physiological psychic disorder where they kind of just become vegetables. There's a lot of like staring and drooling and uh, uh, kind of frozen in state. And I think it was cortisone was the drug uh, that had been used in World War II and all kinds of uh, happy successes had been found related to it. I could be wrong about the drug, but I'm pretty sure it's cortisone. Anyway, for some reason they started giving some of these patients this drug and in moments they would sort of flicker their eyelids and move their head a little bit and in the matter of hours they would start moving their limbs which they people who hadn't done that in 20 years and then in a day some people started speaking and then after a few days, they started sort of conversing and then they started walking around and eating by themselves and going outside into the garden and playing croquet and bull. And uh, and it was the Great Awakening. And, and I can't do justice to Oliver Sacks' description, but it is one of the most profound true life stories of, of a sense of utopia, of a sense of heaven on earth, where... I mean, these people just end up doing the kinds of things that we take for granted. But because they've been so locked in place, it has this special focused quality, uh, this freshness um, that they all feel themselves. Uh, and there's there's serious warmth and, and, and it's beautiful. It's just one of the most beautiful um, oh, that's, yeah, that's, kind of uh, passages in medical history. I think I'm going to have to give that a read. That sounds fantastic. And and I feel a little bit like that's been that quality has echoes in the echo chambers that I've been going through. Uh, relief about 
some kind of relaxation of the lockdown on the one hand, of being able to get some businesses back to work, a kind of early stage awakening of the economy, at the same time as an awakening of something that's been lying dormant for much longer, which is a seriously critical attitude towards those who govern us, towards government. I have seen, I mean, if you look at the Sunday papers, uh, the, the Sunday Times, Sunday Independent, it's like wall-to-wall headlines that are seriously critical of the way that the lockdowns have been managed. And Which of is the an incredibly sharp turn. I mean, things were so different even just a week ago in the sort of zeitgeist. Yeah, and I, it kind of gave me... A week ago, I mean, the last two episodes that we did, we called them grumpy episodes because we were feeling so uh, morose and so pessimistic about the, the the overwhelming police brutality, the irrational regulations and the meek genuflection before the glorious emperor leader making his speeches now and then. And it just seemed so craven and so servile and so slavish and so corrupt. Um, that it seemed like, how the hell are we going to dig ourselves out of this hole? And I've, and I've been feeling this kind of awakening around me. But the reason I tell the story is, I mean, it's it's beautiful, but it's, it's one of the most tragic stories. Because what happened in that uh, asylum in the south of France, that sanatorium, was that, you know, it worked for a week or two weeks or three weeks. These people all came back to life. And then staying on the same dosage stopped working and the dosage was ramped up and that stopped working and after about five weeks they had all frozen back up again uh and so their lives for many of them was like you know a youth and then getting this condition and then 20 years of being frozen and then a couple of weeks of the awakening and then the the curtain closing in again and then returning to this uh, catatonic state, blank gaze out the window or into the corner of the wall, depending on where you point their heads and drool falling from their mouths into their laps. And I worry that that the awakening that we're having in South Africa has a similar quality, that uh, as, 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 as encouraging as it is, we seem to be missing some of the key points um, that will turn that anger into a sustained and productive criticism that will actually make things better. Um, and, and, and if we don't make that shift from just being grumpy to, to really driving for practical change, then I think we could have a similar awakening story of, you know, a country that's been lurching into the national democratic revolution for at least a decade now, its economies become sclerotic uh, it gets even worse, and then there's this little, little injection, this temporary I mean, injection of isn't hope, it true that, and then it freezes up again. Isn't it true that we've already been through a little bit of something like that, where we had a sort of false awakening, um, but the Zuma must fall stuff? Yep, that's exactly it. And Ramaphoria, I mean, how 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 exciting w- w- was the kind of conclusion to Nasrik in December 2017? I think so many people went to Christmas just a couple of days after that to gather with their families and to and and to cheers and to toast that we'd survived 
the worst and that now we would be allowed to make our ways freely as individuals uh, and in the groups that we volunteer into uh, to, 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 to progress into the future. And that was a false awakening for sure. And so, and maybe I am getting old now. I'm only 30, but maybe I'm getting old. Maybe I've had one too many experiences <laughs> like that. And so in the middle of this one, rather than enjoying it with all of my heart, I, I, feel, I feel very apprehensive. But let's be more precise about why that is. And Nick, you were saying something about, uh, about the connection between, uh, about the factions in the ANC. And, and part of what seems hopeful is that the ANC seems to be kind of tearing at the seams a little bit. Maybe those factions are being exposed a little bit more. Maybe the good side's going to win. Uh, maybe that's part of what's on people's minds. Um, what are the sides in the ANC and, and how do they, how do they well, connect here? So, so, you know, a lot of critics of the ANC and, and, you know, we occasionally do this as a kind of shorthand as well. Um, we, we talk about sort of the honest communists and the looters or the, the racial, racial nationalists who are, you know, not so necessarily ideological, um, but just want to steal everything that's not nailed to the floor. Uh, the, the media, honest, honest, yeah. and the mafia, yeah, yeah, and uh, the media is 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 very fond of a very particular version of this story, which is the uh, the good, honest, true um, saviors, people like Pravin, Pravin Gordon, and and uh, maybe even Tito, depending on which media you talk to, um, and the evil Zoomerites. But yeah, uh, part of the problem with this construction is it sort of breaks down one of the key linkages between socialism and corruption. So in a lot of places in the world, socialists are kind of, you know, when they enjoy popular support, it's often from a position of criticizing the corruption of whatever regime is in power. Um, so in Japan, for example, the uh, Japanese Communist Party, it's not very powerful or influential except in a few relatively uh, local areas, small, small areas. Um, but it has a reputation of being the most honest and, you know, criticizing uh, the corruption in the government, which is, you know, there's quite a lot of in Japan, or at least in some parts of Japan, in the 70s in particular. Um, and we've got a similar thing, right? The the sort of Praveen Gordans and the, the SACP crowd um, and some of the leftist allies of uh, Zuelan Zimavavi is another one, of, of um, Ramaphosa and that faction of the ANC. They have this reputation of being uh, honest and maybe they're a bit misguided or a bit ideological but they're ultimately they're honest and they're trying to fight against corruption even if they you know some of us might even say that uh, their heart's in the right place even if their ideas are bad but the reality is socialism is really tied to corruption in a very deep way it it allows corruption like nothing else can uh, if we think of corruption as being the uh, that nexus between sort of injustice, power, um, and the acquisition of of wealth using sort of power and, 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 and injustice, then what socialism does is it, because it centralizes power and control um, with a very small group of people, and because it disrupts the sort of uh, value-add chains that we talk about here all the time, you know, like, uh, in other words, the person who provides the best service or works the hardest gets the best 
you know, gets gets rewarded the most. Um, because it disrupts those chains, it opens up more avenues for corruption. Uh, you know, there's nothing that corruption likes more than licensing. And yet licensing is right. often a very big part of a socialist control of, the, uh, of the, an economy. Um, and we're kind of seeing that now a bit in the way that, you know, there's been a lot of stories going around. And I've, I've just heard one now that, you know, I haven't confirmed. So I'll leave the details very vague. But basically that there is a, a, a Hindu temple in Johannesburg that looked at getting food parcels for, for people. Um, uh, and that this was channeled through, this was forced by the government to channel through effectively an ANC front organization. Um, and that the, the food parcels were then turned into political gifts from the ANC. Uh, there are there are numerous other stories about this. There's also stories where churches have tried similar things or which is sort of normal NGOs have tried certain things. I've heard similar stories um, around gift of the givers being restricted from giving out food parcels unless they are correctly licensed. Um, and so it's really actually a little bit difficult to tell right now whether this is the National Democratic Revolution or whether this is just people trying to get control over food parcels so that they can use them for corruption, you know, maybe selling them, all that kind of thing. But that, that's my point, I guess, is that uh, you know, you can't really tell where one begins and one ends because corruption is so baked into the the inevitable consequences of socialism. Yeah, yeah, and with the food parcel thing, it just feels so much like the scenes from Zimbabwe that I saw when I was a teenager in the 2000s, uh, where, uh, you know, Zimbabwe had been a pretty strong agricultural producer, and then expropriation without compensation wrecked its agri-sector as well as the rest of the economy. And so they could no longer it was no longer food secure, there was a famine, and then there was also a very bad flood uh, that covered Mozambique and, and uh, parts of South Africa. And, uh, and so the world stepped in with a lot of aid. A lot of it came from the US, some from the UN and so on. And as far as was possible, that aid was then redirected and channeled through uh, the ZANU-PF to alienate the uh, Morgan Schwangerai's opposition party at the time. Yeah. And it, it was just so revolting. It was so cynical. And and I think your point, I mean, I, I, there, there are other ways of, of getting corruption. And we talked about YouTube's uh, kind of censorship from this kind of sure. uh, pseudo-monopolistic position that it's in. But there is something very concerning let, about when you've got this coordination that, uh, of violence. Let it not be said that the political left has anything like a monopoly on corruption. <laughs> Because it certainly doesn't. Good. Yeah. But so I, I really like your central point here that that if you look deep enough into it, they 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 become two sides of the same coin. The the, the 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 differences are superficial. So here's how I've been thinking about it, and it's been related to to to, to tobacco. Um, now I am addicted to smoking. It's uh, I love it. It's also a real bummer, and I hate it. Um, and I had managed to stave to store up and kind of discipline myself to have enough to get through the lockdown. And when they had announced that on the 1st of May, you'd be allowed to buy cigarettes again, I was really relieved um, because I'd been hanging out with cigarettes, with illicit uh, tobacco dealers. And I'd sort of been pretending that I'd been buying their stuff, but I hadn't really because I, like secretly, it's kind of a very secret little point of principle. I really don't like buying illicit cigarettes. 
Um, <laughs> but I, I finally had to because I really ran out. And it's it's irritating to me because I like to pay my taxes because this country, you know, I want those taxes to go to the right things. But the other thing is that these cigarettes have twice as much tar and twice as much nicotine per cigarette mm. as my old ones. So I can kind of get away with smoking a bit less, but the, the rhythm of smoking is kind of part of the addiction. And so it's as it's a little bit like I'm smoking twice as much now, uh, even though I'm just smoking the same amount because they're twice as, as poisonous and twice as strong. Uh, so that worsens my addiction and it's a hard thing to manage. Anyway, so that's just about me. Um, but it got me thinking, as tobacco, as nicotine often does, about the extension of the ban. And so the angles that everyone has covered already is that, you know, there were like 70,000 submissions about the thing. Only 2,000 of those submissions opposed it. But in course, at Lamini Zuma said, it's because of those 2,000 submissions that we went against it at a press conference. She was asked, what's the science behind it? She said, oh, that's a very good question. I'll get back to you. Uh, the <laughs> science, the best science available on it indicates that, you know, nicotine wrecks your lungs over time. But if you're actually busy taking nicotine at the time that you're around the virus, it looks like there's very considerable evidence that it reduces your chances of infection. And if you're infected, particularly the strongest virus uh, indications that if you are infected, it reduces your chances of getting a cytokine storm and a, a hyper overreaction in your immune system, which is often a very important part of what proves oh, deadly in the virus. It's just one of the so, ways that kills you. Yeah. yeah. So, so the medical argument for banning tobacco is ridiculous. The, the next thing that was covered here first, you heard about this uh, 10 days ago, was me talking about the connection between, let's call them the Zoomerite faction of the ANC, the mafia side, uh, and illicit tobacco, and that connection having been made most clear by Jacques Poe, and the question needing to be asked, is that what's going on again? Now, Jacques Poe, a couple of days ago, uh, long after that, came forward and, and said, you know, he looks to him very much like that connection is in play here. So it seems like... You, you, you ban tobacco and then you keep the ban up for no good reason other than that it drives the revenues away from the legal market into the illegal market and you've got friends in the illegal market and you've got, you know, you've, you, 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 you're rubbing their back and they're rubbing yours. So that's just classic licensing uh, corruption. So there's another side to the story, one that hasn't been covered, which is that as the data becomes more clear, it looks like COVID is not going to kill that many people in South Africa or anywhere else in the world. I'm not saying that it's not going to kill hundreds of thousands around the world, maybe millions, but I'm saying relative to what our expectations were a month ago and two months ago, the, the overall expectations have come down, partly because of the lockdowns, which uh, have been more global than I think many epidemiologists expected, but also partly because if you just look at their models, like even if you go into lockdown, what kind of death rates are you expecting? Uh, what kinds of uh, morbidity rates are you expecting? It looks like it's the the, disease, the virus is not as deadly as we thought it was, even if it's more infectious. And, so, and let's not let's not just give credit yeah. though to to the lockdowns. It's also people, individuals taking uh, responsibility for their own health and their own hygiene and stuff, and really making a strong effort to socially distance as much as they can in their own lives, which I think has done a lot more than a lot of lockdowns. Full on. I completely agree. And and I've got a piece coming out about that, which I think is going to probably be the most important thing I write about this crisis. But I want to put a pin in that and and stick to the stick to the tobacco. Given that given that COVID is is the point is that more people are likely to die of cancer in South Africa just this year and certainly over the next 
decades, uh, uh, orders of magnitude more than of than of the coronavirus. And when I was at high school, same high school as Nick, uh, we had a chapel service. We had a, a little group. You, you know, we we it was a Methodist school, so you'd have formal chapel very no, every now and then. But a lot of the chapel services were just like ten boys sitting around with a teacher or a chaplain, kind of talking about life. And when we were in matric, those talks became a bit more about adulthood. And like one of them was we sat and we had to go through a whole book of pictures of people with venereal diseases, like just rotting genitalia. Um, and it was kind of like, you know, before matric vac, like guys, you really want to protect yourself because you, it, the worry is not just HIV. It's also like uh, the crabs and the this and the that. And they're not really funny. Like have a look at that and it freaks you out. Much like then having uh, pictures passed around at another one of of what lungs look like after someone has been using them to inhale tar and nicotine for decades. And it's really gross. And the tobacco conversation that we had was interesting because our, our, our teacher said to us, look, guys, everyone's been saying smoking is just bad. It's not just bad. It's a hell of a lot of fun. It brings on uh, inebriation quicker when you mix it with liquor. It's a neurostimulant, so it can help you be more creative. It can help you pull all-nighters. It's There's a nice social aspect to it. So there's going to be a lot of real temptations to do it when you're a university student. But here's what you have to worry about. If you get addicted, it's extremely hard to stop, even if you dedicate all of your energy to stopping it. And once you become an adult, you only have a couple of weeks of holiday a year. It's almost impossible to stop during the work week because you can't concentrate. And yeah. it's going to be very hard for you to stop during the holidays because you've got those holidays are so precious. They're going to be the only times that you see your family if your family lives in another city. And that can be stressful. And it's going to be a hard time to go with through withdrawal. And so one of our teachers said, literally, literally said this, said, I quit when I realized I wanted to quit when I realized I realized that it was, that I was an idiot for smoking when I started dreaming of some kind of pandemic or war or, or or like an EMP that destroys all machinery, like all electronics exploding, like some kind of disaster locking down the entire country. Because that way I wouldn't have to go to work, but I also wouldn't have the FOMO of like, you know, staying away from my family during a holiday season. And I could just get a few weeks to be by myself and quit. And he was like, when he, when he realized he wanted the whole world to kind of go on hold so that he could do a thing, that he'd painted himself into a very ugly corner. Anyway, now we're in that position, right, where, like, from a from an authoritarian paternalistic government point of view, the 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 argument for keeping for banning nicotine is that yeah, some people will buy illicit cigarettes, but some people who have to stay at home who can't continue doing their jobs, manual laborers, whatever, can use this time to quit, and if you can get like a million South Africans to quit smoking cigarettes today, then in the next 20, 30 years, you will see that in the death rates. That will save hundreds of thousands of lives. In you know, there'll be increased living expectancy, less uh, cancers of various kinds, less emphysemas, uh, overall better better health. And you know, also people who quit are less likely to have their friends or their kids pick up smoking from them. So you could have a knock-on effect from that. So I thought, okay, maybe the mafia their reason for banning cigarettes is to make money uh, through their connections in the illicit trade, as we discussed last week, and as, as Jacques Prose brought the, 
the country's attention to. But maybe there's also this like socialist paternalist thing that's going on there that they're not saying out loud because they're not giving any real reason out loud. But that Ramaphosa's hope, you know, with his like medical doctor wife and whatever, is that like if we can just we've got this awful situation since everyone's locked down. Why don't we turn the screws on, try and get as many people to quit as possible? And then in the year 2080, actuaries and epidemiologists are going to look back and say, well, that nicotine ban in South Africa, which was an exceptional thing, has proved to save over the next 60 years uh, like a million lives. Wouldn't that be a great legacy to have? And the reason I like this is because I think many listeners will be just like I was at high school and all my friends around me kind of tempted by that thought. Like it's quite a seductive act of paternalism. Just ban the stuff for a few weeks and then you can let it come back. And 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 in exchange for, for banning it, you get to save people's lives. But there's a deep problem with it. And the deep problem is that is that he's not even is that no one is trying to make that case. So my theory of paternalism, like I don't or long termism. Because this is really, if this is, if, you know, the one thing we've heard about Ramaphosa again and again is that he's a long-term strategist. And when I had this thought, I thought maybe what we're learning here is that Ramaphosa really is a long-term strategist. But his strategy is like the next century. Uh, that's when he wants, you, you, he's not strategizing now to like in a couple of years time make some big changes. He's like strategizing to make changes now that are the ripple effects of which are going to be seen for centuries. And the, the, and thinking in a very long-term view like that is a good thing. I think a lot of pro arguments for like uh, in reinforcing property rights and and having a robust market economy, it's like you will and see the best inflation. parts of those rewards and avoiding inflation. You'll see the best parts of those rewards in 40 years. Uh, China establishes private property rights in 1978, and it's only really in the 1990s that their economy starts blowing up. Uh, same with South Korea. Once they really get the right basis going, it, it takes a while for it to really work. So I'm happy with long-termism like that. Here's what I'm not happy with. The long-termist who doesn't think it's worth his effort to make the case, to persuade people that, you know, I am taking away your rights now for a few weeks uh, and this is why I'm doing it. And now that you know my reasons, you can punish me at the ballot box in the next time that there's an election and say that wasn't the right thing to do. Or you can reward me because you can be like, you know what, uh, just like with the lockdown overall, it's suspension of liberties in order to save lives. And we think you made the right call. And and if you're not willing to give the explanation, then you're not then you're not a long term kind of thinker uh, in a democratic sense. Then you are a despot. And if you're a, a despot who's thinking in in terms of centuries, then in South Africa, you're kind of the most worrying thing. And I saw that when I went to the Thomas Piketty Pick lecture in, at, in Soweto in 2015, where so many of the people dripping in jewels afterwards were super excited about that speech, looking back at France from 1789 to today and saying, you know, what we've drawn from this and what the conclusion he's led us to is that Zimbabwe has been criticized by everyone because it ruined its economy for a couple of decades uh, by doing this expropriation the right of our thing. But if you look forward another hundred years, by the year two thousand one hundred, if they, if if the Zimbabwean government now gets its act together, 
uh, if they secure property rights, if they get good legislation, if they uh, have a thrilling and robust democracy, by the year 2100, their standard of living is going to be amazing, but there's just going to be much less white people around than there would have been if Mugabe hadn't done his thing. So it's like they're willing to sacrifice their children on the altar of this race god for a generation or two in order that for hundreds of years or thousands of years to come, the the race god would be pleased and that and that, that country's success would have the right race look. And if, 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 Ram, if Ramaphosa a- is a long-term strategist, then you may be sacrificing the economy for a decade or two is, is like maybe he gets it. Maybe we've been arguing EWC is going to make life worse, not just for white South Africans, for millions and millions of black South Africans. Maybe the reason that argument hasn't been getting through to the president is that he already knew it from the start, but he's a real long-termist and he's like happy to sacrifice a generation through holding on to the state-owned enterprises and bailing them out with pension money and enacting revanchist EWC and so on. Because he thinks, you know, by 2050, by 2100, when we have a clean administration, we will have held on to all of the assets and we will have racially reconfigured the country. And then when it's great, it will be great in the sort of socialist race nationalist model that 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 we think is the real target. And that is as concerning, if not more concerning to me, than the mafiosa uh, interpretation of of the of the nicotine ban. Yeah, if there was ever a reason to be suspicious of grandiose uh, ideological projects, um, it's that the, that kind of thinking. The way that these things can lead you down very dark paths. Um, I think that uh, all sensible liberals <laughs> are, are suspicious of of that kind of thing because, of course, uh, one of the other problems with this idea that, let's say, for example, the to, to go back to the smoking ban thing. Um, that this, oh, you know, in 80 years it could save however many hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, is that not, you know, uh, I can't remember what piece of pop culture it's from, but uh, there's a quote from something famous. It says, not even the wise can see all ends. And yeah, that kind, there's a kind of arrogance baked into that assumption that, uh, you know, nothing will change. We know all the facts we need to know now to make the optimal decision, which is, of course, not true. Because uh, the world is very complicated and changes all the time, and it's very difficult often to make uh, the right call, especially when you go bigger and grander in any idea. Um, which is another reason why this sort of, uh, you know, uh, malevolent long-termist thinking will inevitably lead to some sort of disaster down the road. It won't even give the promised nirvana in a hundred years. Well, it hasn't yet, eh? It's, it hasn't worked yet. So. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't worked yet. <laughs> and uh, every every regime in history that's tried something so ambitious has always uh, met its end rather unfortunately and uh, usually quite pathetic. Excepting, yeah, excepting for those who've been like, here's our long-term strategy. Let's just try and maximize human freedoms. And, yes. And that's, and that's tended to work because in a way it's the most short-termist thing. It's like saying... Uh, it's like a it, yeah. I mean, it's a grand long-term project, well, well, but, but it's saying in the immediate, you make your choice, you make your choice, you make your choice, you make your choice. Uh, yeah, the difference, the difference with that one is that it's rather uh, short on details, um, and it allows people to fill in the blanks and their that, own that, way in yeah, in a million different ways. Yeah. Now I'm a fan of that, and and I and I and I and I think it's I think it's. I mean, I don't know. I think it's chilling to consider. Like, I was, I, I just, I, I was, uh, to 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 imagine 
this aloof president who spends a lot of his time walking uh, around his history insofar as we have a history of him as a as a capitalist was of being the guy who was like not often super with it at board meetings wasn't reading the you know often would arrive with the file unread unopened you know he seems very aloof and at the same time very charismatic and it's those are quite hard to reconcile like why didn't people just be irritated and, and just think he's lazy um and, you know, part of it might be the soft bigotry of low expectations, but I think a lot of it is what you see on the TV. There, there is something about his vision. Like, he is a visionary. He's clearly good at expressing um, and holding on to uh, great ideas. But, yeah, amazing. And in uh, making the debt situation worse, eroding property rights. And, and I mean... By his words, by his verbal, public pronouncement, uh, doing doing everything that one would do if one wanted to sacrifice a generation on the on the altar of a race god, uh, so that in two thousand, so that in a in a century, people might look back and say, "Well, you can see this awful forty years where South Africa had the worst unemployment, and you know it was just miserable to be South African at the time." But but this was the upshot of it. Um, once everything was burnt to the ground, they really could begin afresh. And and whether or not he thinks like that, I mean, he, he remains enigmatic to me, but certainly a lot of the ANC has uh, had a fixation on that, and a lot of the youth movements that started outside of the ANC. Fallism, I mean, fallism is a very long-term project. In the well, short term, it's uh, about bringing everything down, but that's because in the very long term, the hope is that, you know, in a thousand years, on the ashes of UCT, there will now be Wakanda. Uh, wasn't it our um, uh, our favorite uh, NDZ, Kosasanit uh, Lumini Zuma, wasn't she talking recently in a speech about class suicide and how it might be necessary for the middle classes to uh, uh, sort of kill them, be killed off so that they could, um, so that the country could be saved? It's yeah, the last time, the last time I heard something like that, it was from that Italian... A uh, human rights lawyer who worked in KZN uh, most of his life, uh, who said that he had a conversation with Ramaphosa in '94, and he said, "What is your long-term strategy?" And Ramaphosa said, "In 20, 25 years, we want to slowly. We don't want to like all the other African uh, uh, revolutionary parties that screwed up when they gained independence. We don't want to chase away the whites because we want their money and they take their money with them. So we want to keep them here and slowly drain their money out of them and take away their freedom so that they get weak enough that we can do as we wish." It's like boiling frogs slowly in water. I mean, and that was like a 25, that, is, that was a very long-term strategy being expressed back then, one that he hasn't recanted on. And uh, and it was very much a, a class suicide story. And the final thing about this is, you know, Ramaphosa has talked about making South Africa Eden. Uh, Mohoeng, Mohoeng, the chief justice of the Constitutional Court, has talked about, uh, has made several speeches about 19th century history um, and how it connects to today. And, of course, in university campuses and parts of the ultra-left media, it's, like, quite common to refer to 1652s, people, you know, to call white people, to, to harken back to Jan van Riebeek. Jacob Zuma used to say everything was fine until Jacob until Jan van Riebeek arrived. Uh, and that's kind of where the, some of the phrases of original sin come from. So, I mean, the, the, one of the things about race nationalist stories 
is that they're always well they tend to be very very long stories they tend to span centuries or millennia uh this was true of the slav race nationalist story uh that and probably started with uh, one of the gaelic nationalist story as well. of the nazis of the japanese they you know and so like black race nationalists um much like uh those Slav race nationalists and Aryan race nationalists and so on, you know, they th they think in centuries. They think, you know, uh, Africa, South Africa was a great place to be until the 1600s, and then it started being a great place to be only in some parts of it, and then by 1902 it became it became completely run by whites, and so you know, it like took three centuries for it to get awful, and then there was a century of apartheid or in, in one form or another. And you know you often hear like after after a thousand after 500 years of slavery and apartheid like how can you expect people to get over it in 20 years and and so much of the political debate is about how far into the past you should or shouldn't look i think you should look all the way um, myself uh, never shy away from it but the flip side is how far into the future do you look and if you've got an extremely long-term horizon if your end state that you're aiming for is how South Africa looks in 2100 or 2200, then sacrificing a generation or sacrificing a middle class, uh, an entire middle class, that makes sense. Uh, or I mean, I mean I'm not saying is, it morally makes sense because it's intolerable, uh, but it but it makes you can see how that fits into a really big picture. What is the race nationalist's favorite time horizon? It usually seems to be the thousand year Reich, the thousand year kingdom. Uh, yeah. They really do think of themselves as being on a grand historic mission that will end many, many generations from now with utopia. And if you and if you imagine how that story would play out in someone's imagination, it would be, you know, here we were, we tried the National Democratic Revolution, we were getting some things right, but we were being assaulted and dominated by white monopoly capital, and then some of the caters were too busy looting in, in a short-termist kind of way, they were undermining our credibility, and it even, you know, the, the polling wasn't doing great, and it even looked like the opposition non-racialists might have won out. But instead, uh, you know, just in time, this virus came, and it locked down the economy, and it, it, it destroyed so much wealth, and it weakened civil society sufficiently that and it and it, it 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 emboldened the police and the army uh enforcing the you know a, a complete lockdown of freedom of movement and and this is when the true communist revolutionary forces found their metal and this is when they grabbed the country by its throat and strangled out the filthy diseased kind of useless people and yes some good people died with the bad but what emerged from that was was a, a lean, mean, healthy body politic that could then, uh, yeah, live out the dream for a thousand years. And and I I think that story is just I know we're dwelling on it. I come I'm kind of repeating myself. But I, but it's just I suppose it's part of what came with this awakening, uh, is that I saw you know an awakening in a lot of freedom loving people, but also a continued awakening amongst a small elite that really, this command council that's really running the country. Ibram Patel saying we're going to keep e-commerce shut down uh, out of spite because others might feel jealous if some companies get to uh, add value again through the internet 
when they can't because they can't get onto the internet. When you've got Nkosana Laminizuma extending the tobacco ban, when you've got Becky Kele dreaming about uh, banning liquor forever, when you've got Sora Ramaphosa saying that this virus is building the road towards the nationalized health service in South Africa, uh, which, you know, some countries have that. And this is an example where so socialism sometimes can work. Nationalized healthcare systems can work in some countries, but not in countries that have the kinds of fiscal and administrative problems that we have, not in countries that let a thousand, a hundred insane people die and rot in their own filth uh, for want of the most basic attention and care and respect for for their subjects. You know, this is this is a, a government that has subjects rather than citizens in in so many ways, and and that's just and you, you can't ever afford to have a national healthcare system so yeah so again yeah uh, nick can i move us on you can you can <laughs> i'm giving myself the heebie-jeebies here man <laughs> ah you know what it'll be fine <laughs> or it won't in the end it'll be fine if and if it's not fine it's not the end eh? yeah if you if you just draw the time scale out long enough eventually it'll be fine <laughs> But maybe that's just sounding a little bit too much like the race nationalists. <laughs> I think. Well, no. I mean, that's definitely what uh, you should read. You should read Russian literature from around when the Soviet Union took over. That is what a lot of the aristocrats were saying. They were like, "Ah, oh, man, you know, maybe it'll be rubbish for a little while, but we'll get through this." <laughs> well, I mean, uh, <laughs> we it's arguable. Those who about, did get through arguable it. about whether we are uh, we're still there. We, we're yet to reach that point from the Russian aristocracy's perspective. <laughs> Yeah, well, indeed. Okay, but so those who did get to it often ran away, and you might think of running away to America. And uh, America's got its own problems. Um, and I suppose one of those problems is uh, similar to ours, um, that it's kind of uh, obsessed with various kinds of uh, tribalisms and race politics and partisanship is so extreme that there's, you know, that people really talk past each other a hell of a lot. Um, and in that regard, there's just a little, I'm just going to flag the story. I'm not going to get into it deeply, but there's a story about the largest uh, procurement for the Veterinary Association uh, of America. The, the, the Veteran sort of, Association or the Veteran? The Veteran Association. Not, not, yes, not for animals, for former soldiers. Um, 35 odd million dollars for for six million masks which is like an average price of five dollars and 75 cents for a mask uh five dollar is, masks is quite uh yeah. quite a number <laughs> two or three times more than it should be costing and this particular contract went to a guy called robert stewart jr um who uh, was criticized in Washington Post, and then he said, no, you guys are falsely criticizing me, and then an, a journalist from ProPublica went along and tagged along with him to try and get the true story. Uh, the journalist's name was uh, J. David McSweeney, and it's just the most bizarre story. It's on ProPublica, a really uh, credible uh, publication in a lot of ways, and basically, like, he goes along and he and this and this and this uh, guy's got the contract, uh, Robert Stewart Jr. They get on a like chartered jet to fly across America to go to see where the masks are going to be delivered and like pop a bottle of champagne. The guy's mom and dad are going to be there, and and celebrate that they've got these six million masks and then they're going to get the masks to the vets. And while they're in the plane, 
you know, this journalist is asking him questions like, why are we flying a plane like this? There are commercial flights. Why don't we use one of those? And he says, well, you know, I've got to show people that I'm like a big deal so that they feel intimidated by me so that we get the stuff done. Uh, and he's like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and what kinds of like experience do you have in this kind of procurement? And he's like, basically none. And then he's like, well, how did you get this job? And he takes out a Bible and he says, I don't know, man, it's a miracle. So that's kind of distressing. <laughs> so later on, there's uh, the the, uh, the journalist interviews uh, someone who helped set up the deal. And this person says that they spoke to uh, uh, U.S. Representative Sheila, Lee, Sheila Jackson Lee, a Texas Democrat in Congress, uh, who got her office to draft a letter in support of FGE's contract bid. And I'm quoting here, um, the person asks the Congresswoman, can you lend your voice to this veteran-owned African-American business? Roosevelt said he asked the Congresswoman. And yes, she says, she's always willing to bat for folks who are trying to do the right thing. Uh, so that maybe gives some context as to how the contract was won. And then, you know, he tries and he keeps trying and it never works out. And so eventually the contract's canceled and they get the mask somewhere else for much cheaper. But in, in the meantime, something like 20 nurses and doctors who'd been working in VA hospitals had contracted the coronavirus because they were working without protection and they died. Um, so on the one level, it's like, it's like reads as quite an entertaining story. I mean, this guy's like, he seems, I must say, he seems very sweet and he seems very sincere. Like he clearly believes his own uh, fake it till you make it pitch. And I don't think that he would, you know, I I think that he, God, I think he's going to have a lot of sleepless nights. Um, but, you know, if you, procurement, it's just this thing that we said the other day, like wars, so much of, so many wars are won and lost, not on the battlefield, but on the logistics, uh, supply chains getting to the battlefield. And, so and, people, and you, especially those with grandiose visions, think that the logistics is the easy part. <laughs> Yeah, and it's really complicated. And if you've got anything messing about with your meritocratic kind of matrix for like choosing the best person for the job, if there's anything at all, um, it's it's very dangerous. And and it's dangerous. It's also dangerous. It's like dangerous from everyone's point of view. Like it's dangerous to be thinking I need to be performing some kind of character here in order to get the job done. You know. Mm -hmm. I feel really sorry for this guy. Like he, it, I feel like so much of America's culture has painted him into this corner where he really must have thought he was doing the right thing. And he would have had so many people affirming him in that belief that uh, that it would just be crazy to hold him to blame alone for, for any of this. I mean, obviously, he shouldn't have said he can do something that he can't do. But the fact that he believed it was – it feels socially programmed. It feels like the distribution of esteem uh, programmed for that in a way that's – Disturbing, and I think that maps onto South Africa. When we talk about BEE, when we talk about uh, the complaints about that being a matrix through which to look at supply chain management or at relief funding, it's 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 a lot of it. A lot of my concern is that everyone, black and white, effective and ineffective, who's in a world where that's one of the considerations, finds it, I think, just a little bit harder to to focus on the mission. Because it's a genius factor. 
and it's distracting and it's confusing even to well-intentioned people as well as to as to miscreants. And so anyway, it's just like a side, it's just like a sideshow story, but it's a telling story. Um, Nick, I, I think we're getting towards uh, the hour. So we were going to talk about Sweden and some of the American states opening up. And we also wanted to talk about schools. Maybe we can't do both. Maybe we can. But I'm, I'm going to put it to you to decide what we what we get. Yeah, into. no. Let's 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 talk a little bit about about uh, the Rona, as the kids are calling it these days. Um, and I think uh, maybe the the global perspective stuff is uh, uh, we should give a, we should have a chat about. Okay, you 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 go ahead, mate. Yeah, so, I don't know I mean, what the Rona is. I'm not as young as you, Nick. The, the I, Rona. <laughs> the Rona. I've been told um, <laughs> by reliable sources is is the cool kid's name on the street for uh, for coronavirus. Um, the other one is the crow, which I think are are actually not bad, like as far as as like far that. as sort of slang, slang explanations go. I like um, the crow. I like koro as well, which is what they call it in Nigeria and a lot of Yeovil. Uh, ah, the yeah, koro. No, sometimes the koro koro. Uh, so you've 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 actually been looking at the data much more closely than I have. Uh, I think you you wanted to talk a little bit about um, uh, an article recently uh, written on uh, by someone. But um, yeah, we really are starting to see. I think it's it's pretty clear now that in most places there has been a what we call the, the this uh, flattening of the curve. It really did take place. Um, obviously, there's a lot of argument over what precisely caused that, uh, how much of it was social distancing, how much of it was the virus spreading to the population. Uh, and those answers will come to us over the next couple of weeks. But um, a lot of places are now opening up. Uh, and so we're really going to see, I think, I guess, on the other side as to how effective maybe some of these uh, interventions were. If we see spikes up in infections again, um, it suggests that maybe the lockdowns were more crucial to our relative success in dealing with the, the coronavirus. Um, uh, yeah, so if we see if we see a, a lot of cases now, uh, particularly in places like um, Sweden, uh, sorry, not Sweden, uh, Florida, which Germany. is the US, and Germany, right. uh, Austria, yeah. uh, these are places yeah. that, that are all opening up right now. Um, I think it's also important to maybe look at the specifics of of so so this is this has happened a little bit with Sweden is that uh, some people have kind of given the impression that there has been like no restrictions or lockdowns or changes to behavior in Sweden at all um, during the coronavirus, but that's actually not true. Um, even though Sweden's government has taken a much more relaxed approach towards the uh, uh, the containing of the virus. Uh, Sweden has a pretty, shall we say, conformist population. Uh, yeah, so I, can I swing in on that? So I watched an yeah. interview with a Swedish economist on, on RT uh, last night, and they said, why is it working so well in Sweden? Uh, I mean, it's obviously not perfect, but like you guys, the way I'd say it is that they've pulled the lever of the esteem economy, so the government has has, has given advice, and they haven't pulled the lever of hard power. Uh, yes. In nearly, in nearly the way that everyone else has. So uh, th that's part of the reason I think talking about the esteemed economy is so good is you can, you, it's really playing out. Um, but they said, why is it working in, in Sweden and it's not working elsewhere? 
or would it work elsewhere? Do you think you can copy this model? And the guy says, I'm going to do a terrible accent. He says, uh, yeah, well, you know, it can work in Sweden uh, because in Sweden, there are a lot of Swedish people. And <laughs> in other countries, there are not many Swedish people. And for this to work, you need many Swedish people. And so it can work in Sweden because it's almost entirely Swedish people. And in other countries, there are almost no Swedish people. So we really don't advise that you try it because you don't have Swedes. And the, the, like the look on the RT Sophie's face was she was so uh, like clearly peeved. Uh, but also like it's, it's kind of part of a language that Europeans speak in a way that I think a lot of, especially non-English Europeans speak, that I think a lot of South Africans don't get. Like they think of the difference between a Swede and a Norwegian, even within the Nordic countries, as being like the kinds of ways we sometimes think of the differences be being between black and white and between a Slav or a Russian and a and a German and so on. So, so but she's like, what makes the Swedish people so special? And it's trust uh, is the thing you kept coming back to. They, they kind of trust the government and the government trusts the experts. So when the experts make a recommendation, they just recommend that people do things and then they do it and you don't have to threaten them with laws. And it is ultimately a threat of law. They said, if we, we're going to recommend that you do these things, if people don't do it, then we will make regulations that force them to do it. But if but if if there's just high compliance rates, then then we're not going to make a law out of it. We're just going to leverage the esteem economy. Um, Probably a so that's better kind of, example of places that uh, maybe have done less of a lockdown are some of those U.S. states, uh, maybe some of the less dense, more Western ones, um, yeah. because they are very uh, hyper individualistic. Often, um, they really take that stuff seriously, uh, and some of those states have not been too restrictive in their. Uh, in their policies uh, i'm thinking even though they don't have as many swedish them. people yes even though they don't have swedish people in fact they have so, the opposite so it might swedish be, people. <laughs> it might be that even non-swedish people can pull this off or maybe that's um, because those are places where almost no one lives <laughs> yeah no but it is nick i think you've hit the nail on the head the thing to do is in countries that have very good testing regimes and have been consistently testing in the same kinds of ways over time uh, through the lockdown, now through the relaxation, Germany's letting its soccer teams play again, letting people go back on the streets again, stuff like that. You watch that and then you get a sense of how much of the regulation side helped and how much was it the people's voluntary kind of esteem economy side. And if it turns out that there's a big uptick, then you were like, well, regulations mattered a lot in that particular place. If not, then you get a sense that the esteem economy is doing a lot of the work of, of blocking this off. Now, this brings me to looking at the numbers in, in detail, brings me to Max Dupreer, who's written uh, an article ah. in the Daily Maverick that, uh, you know, I just want to say Max Dupreer, like one of the first things I ever wrote at the Institute of Race Relations was of, of, of uh, uh, a criticism of a very sincere and very serious criticism of Max Dupreer. Uh, I think he, he he openly advocates. I mean, in this interview that he did with Helen Zilla afterwards, uh, he really openly advocated for treating for white people treating black people as if they've got thicker skulls and thinner skins. Um, and uh, it's it's really soft bigotry of low expectations stuff. It's a it's it's a kind of paternalism. It's not. It's definitely not the kind of racism that he was around in the Nats era. Um, but it is a kind of paternalism that I, that 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 I think uh, 
uh, corrupt. Yeah, it's got deep roots, and it's, it's 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 anyway. It's very important to look at it in the face and criticize it. And I've done that. Now, uh, Max Dupree, I think in many ways has has been you know this, this virus brings out the best and the worst in people. I think it's in a lot of ways brought out the best in him. He's been critical of the Ramaphosa and the ANC in ways that he hasn't been before for a very long time. He's kind of been quite serious about like this lockdown's really rubbish and so on. Um, but he wrote a piece saying. Uh, South Africa's got this exceptional, um, uh, exceptionally low rate of infection. And he draws this log graph uh, of South Africa versus the UK um, uh, rate of infection. And so you see that the, the, cur the two curves are the same. They're kind of climbing quite steeply. And then on the 27th of March, uh, the, the UK's curve keeps climbing and the South African curve suddenly flattens in one day. It just kind of goes flat, uh, quite flat. And so he says, you know, look at this. This is this is this is uh, what's going on here. And then he goes through a bunch of theses to try and explain South Africa's exceptionalism, why South Africa's got the lowest rates of uh, COVID uh, infection, sort of that he finds. And um, look, I think he does quite a good job of of going through that explanation with of testing his theories without kind of obviously drawing the conclusion that it's Ramaphosa's magic is the reason that we're doing better, uh, which is what I would have expected from him last year. Like, I think he has gotten more serious, but he's not gotten more smart. Um, if you look at the data carefully, which I have been doing, um, you will see that in the build-up to the 27th of March, we were doing almost no tests, like 500 on a day, 200 on a day, uh, then 1,000, then 2,000, then 500, then 200. And then on the 26th of March or the 25th, we do zero tests. I'm just going to pull up these numbers in front of me. Uh, yeah, on the 25th of March, we do zero tests. Then on the 26th of March, we do 5,000. Then on the 27th of March, we do 8,000 tests. And those tests have the highest positive, um, the highest percentage of those tests come out positive. So there's this huge spike up to 8,000 from like nowhere to 8,000. And then the very next day on the 28th of March, it drops back down to below 4,000. So it more than halves. And then it stays below 4,000 until the 7th of April, another 10 days, 12 days, whatever it is. Uh, and on the 7th of April, it's zero tests again. So that so the tests climb to this from nowhere to this huge spike and then drop back to nothing. And in that huge spike, it's like they just went to all the hospitals where people were sick and finally confirmed that they had COVID. So it wasn't a real new infection rate test at all. It was just like finally catching up with all of the sick people that they already were in hospital. I think so. I think a, a, good, a good rule of thumb is when you see crazy weird stuff happening with data, as I think has kind of been the sort of way that South Africa's COVID data has looked, that there's probably a piece of the puzzle missing. Uh, rather than, you know, just a simple explanation. And I think this this is exactly that, um, is this data about the tests and how some days we didn't seem to be properly recording the tests that were being done or there weren't any being done, because um, that's going to mess with your analysis. Yeah, and it's not just, I mean, so later on, after, the, after that huge spike, until the 7th of April when they're zero again, it's like, that's the story I've already told. Then after that, you get like, uh, every day kind of at the start of the week it spikes and then it trails down to less than half the original number then it spikes again it trails down to half 
up and down, up and down. So that creates funny things in rates of infection calculations that you want to do. And I've been kind of working with epidemiologists on how to do them. And the strong conclusion coming out of it, the, the, here's what I can tell you with very high confidence. Even our data is so erratic because of the testing that you can't draw any conclusions from this, in which case we're the only country that has gone into lockdown and then come out of lockdown without testing its way to figure out whether it's flattened the curve at all. Or this data is good enough to tell you something in aggregate. And when you aggregate it out, what it tells you is that our rate of infection has stayed exponentially positive growing uh, throughout the lockdown. Um, and that would mean that we're the kind of the only country that's gone into lockdown and come out of lockdown without flattening the curve. Um, our lockdown seems Although, to have been the most useless lockdown at the same time, the most brutal lockdown. So, yeah. Nick, yeah. Not exactly. I was just going to say that. I mean, we've had it a. Uh, in some cases, in a lot of ways, we're really not out of lockdown yet, at least not by official, official proclamation, although one suspects that on the ground the situation is going to deteriorate uh, quite rapidly from this point onwards. Um, I mean, we haven't been in... I've been driving around this uh, parts of the countryside quite a lot. Every small town I go into, it's like the only thing that's in lockdown is business. Like, people are yeah. still hanging out in the streets, holding hands, queuing for, you know, very close to each other. Uh, it, it really hasn't seemed like lockdown. So, I mean, there are three matrices for measuring a lockdown. Like one is how reasonable or rational were the regulations. I think we fail on that dismally. Definitely. Uh, for having a harsh one of the worst then, in the world, if not the worst, as far as I've heard. Then, yeah. Then the next thing is implementation. Like regulations are one thing. The next thing is like how good are you at actually implementing? Some of the worst implementation of the world, according to the UN, uh, you know, we've got like 39 open cases of uh, police brutality, army brutality, including rape, murder, uh, and, you know, uh, 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 milder forms of abuse. Um, and then the third thing is, did the lockdown actually slow down, the, flatten the curve? No. Um, either no, or we haven't done enough testing to know one way or another. And the yeah. only way that you can come to some flattening the curve thing is by doing what Max Dupree did, which is do a log scale of all of the tests, sorry, of all of the new cases, uh, not taking into account the difference in testing rates. And then because on the 26th and 27th of March, we went from doing no tests to suddenly on that day, on those two days, doing more than 12,000 tests, a huge proportion of which came out positive because, as I say, they were testing people who were kind of already known to have the disease rather than going out uh, and testing maybes. Then you, 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 you're just front-loading this thing in a crazy, crazy way. Um, and I don't think Max thought it up himself. That graph is on the website uh, that most people are going to for all South African data. And that website I'm very suspicious of uh, because it used to have the data explicit on daily number of tests. And then it took that chart down and now only has total mm -hmm. tests per day. So you can just pull that data out, put it in Excel, and then get a bar chart of daily tests again. Uh, it's not like it introduces any doubt, but it does for people who don't have the time or the intellectual capacity to look into the numbers. It does in, in uh, my, kind of elide a significant factor. In my in my uh, in my uh, anecdotal in my personal life, I've uh, seen some reasons why our data might not be that good. Um, so I, I have a friend. Uh, who's a doctor, and they said that at the hospital that they're working at, um, there was an extreme reluctance and a delay 
on declaring some of their first COVID cases as COVID cases. They had the test results, they knew it, but they didn't want to basically report them for one simple reason, uh, which is that there would be an enormous amount of administrative hassle and a lot of protocols would have to change. And there was, you know, uh, they just basically didn't want to do it, some of the hospital administrators. And so there was actually a delay <laughs> in reporting. Jesus. Um, now, well, did, I mean, you think I'm about those sure. doctors who got tested. Remember those doctors who got tested positive for COVID in Mpumalanga or Limpopo? And then they had self-quarantined and they're doctors and they know what they're doing. And then the government went and pulled them out of their homes and put them in some prison or, or hotel. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there is there is an awful lot of mucking about going on, on the ground, I think. Uh, yeah, that, that That's probably also adding to the confusion in our data. Yeah. So, 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 so I, I guess the bottom line for me in this, in this story is that, um, is that we, we were celebrated by the BBC and by the WHO as having one of the best lockdowns in the world. Uh, that didn't make sense to me when it, when that's, when those celebrations were coming out, but they went straight to the head of most, uh, programmers and editors in the country and it's a story that was then echoed by people in big business who uh, like to kind of garner a great Facebook following and so on and and uh, and and then now that we're relaxing the thing it's like oh I think a lot of people feel this awakening spirit because they're like well we've been so celebrated um, by these international independent organizations so-called independent organizations the WHO we've already talked about that um, and now we're getting a little bit more freedoms back, and maybe we're going to get through this very exciting. Um, and, I, and, 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 and my sense of why this might be a false awakening is that we're doing the right thing by relaxing the lockdown, and we need to relax it a lot more uh, soon. In, in fact, we need to already have a la- relaxed it a lot more. But it's not because we've succeeded it's not because the lockdown was a success. It's precisely because it was such a terrible failure, because the regulations were irrational, because the implementation was brutal, and because the the the, the kind of um, cost-benefit analysis around what you can do to an economy, uh, to sacrifice an economy in order to save lives, is different here to what it is in other countries, because here so many people are so much closer to the poverty line. Poverty kills, right? It doesn't kill as much... Uh, overseas, it, it doesn't pose as much of a threat overseas as it does here because they've got more wealth to kind of uh, bridge the gap. But here it becomes a, very... It's a society with a lot of uh, suicide and violence in general, things that are not made better by sudden massive economic downturns and unemployment. Yeah. Yeah. And and finally, the world is kind of switching on to this thought that, you know, the that too much of a, a lockdown might actually end up being more of a killer than the disease. I think you probably heard that idea here first because we were talking about this back in February, like before COVID was was seen yes, to be much of a big deal. Anyway, there's a whole episode where we talked about uh, Japan's example of this with the Fukushima uh, disaster. Yeah, and the point is that uh, you know a bunch of uh, scientists calculated that Japan shutting down all its nuclear reactors after the disaster pushed up electricity prices, and that they estimate killed more extra people than the disaster did itself. It killed like two or 3,000 or whatever it was. They estimated excess winter deaths uh, uh, as a result of greater cold exposure, uh, particularly amongst the aged. Uh, 
that's in one of the world's richest countries. And th those epidemiologists were only able to figure that out like a couple of years later by looking at deaths around that time, deaths in winters before, deaths in winters afterwards, then looking at the electricity rates in comparison and doing lots of regression analyses. So, like, I think that the deaths from the lockdown number is going to be something, if, you know, if, if that kind of thing can happen in Japan and it can be worse than the, than the initial disaster that it's trying to ameliorate, like, South Africa has got to be so, so much more at risk. And, and, and that's just not where we're looking. Um, I think that's not where most people are looking. Most people are not seeing this as a bad idea that we're now finally repealing. They're seeing this as like, you know, a, 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 a great idea, not just in principle, but in detail, uh, to have the detailed kind of lockdown that we had. And now it's been a while and we're rolling it back and we're kind of glad that we're rolling it back and isn't that a great success? And that kind of sort of... False confidence, uh, yeah. That's false confidence, I think, is a good setup for, for, for more severe screw-ups uh, to come, uh, but, uh, in particular should, with the economic fallout. Uh, we should probably call this to a closer, as we have gone a bit over time, <laughs> as is our style. Yeah. <laughs> we've been, we've been, we, it's been three days we've been building up to this podcast uh, since yeah. we missed our Friday. There was, there was a lot we needed to get out, and we needed to bear our souls entirely to our listeners. And we didn't even talk about the schools question, which I think we're going to have to leave for the next podcast. No, so you guys hopefully have something to look forward to because I think that's a very interesting debate and, and we'll, yeah. we'll hopefully try and contribute something sober. And that should be on Friday, all things go well, maybe Saturday, uh, assuming we don't have any more logistical problems like we did this time. Yeah. As we said, logistics is difficult. <laughs> logistics is really difficult. Not only are wars won and lost by logistics, but two crickets and a thorn tree. Yeah, no, uh, it suffers. Blown away by the wind. <laughs> but um, we'll be back. Yeah, we will be. Uh, so thank you very much for listening. Um, we hope that you will continue, those of you who are friends of the Institute of Race Relations, continue to support us as friends. Um, and those who are, you know, uh, who have who have money to spend this in these dire times, I, I know it's not many of you, but if you are willing to become a friend of the Institute, small amount of money per month, support us in fighting the battle of ideas and providing our alternative voice in the media, um, as I think we try our best to do here at this podcast. Um, yeah, we'd really appreciate your support. Just go to the website and uh, click on join us. Anyway, we will see you on the next episode of Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree. Cheers, everyone. Thank you.